on this, and happy Father's Day to you. I have my uh, digital going back from uh, the analog version, but thank you, uh, Brother Ezekiel, for reading that for us. Uh, a very happy Father's Day to all who could come. How many fathers are here? Raise your hand. If you are a father, grandfather, that counts too. Raise it high and uh, be proud. Give them a hand again. Praise God for dads. Thank you. You may put it down. Uh, we have a special treat for you after. We'll give it to you after service at the end on your way out, all right? It's food. I don't want you eating in service, all right? I want you eating spiritual food before your physical food, amen? Uh, amen, all right? So uh, happy Father's Day, though. Fathers are uh, tremendously important. Study after study after study after study shows the impact uh, that fathers have in their lives for good or bad. It is an impact that is significant and not easily able to be quantified. Uh, so we are thankful for fathers who are following the Heavenly Father. And now, uh, you might be here and be like, man, it's hard for me to honor my father because I didn't have a good earthly father. But if you are here as a follower of Christ, if you have, been, uh, if you have followed Christ by faith, then you have been adopted into the family of God, which means the Heavenly Father that he is praying to in our passage is your father. And he is a good and faithful father. Uh, and so you may rejoice that you have a father in God. And so uh, it's a day can be a happy Father's Day uh, for you. Uh, thank you to Mililani for coming here. Mililani Community Church. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, go ahead. How many years is this now? Is this nine years? So we're going to have a big year, number 10, right? Every year's a big year, but we're going to. No, we are very uh, thankful to the ministry of Mililani uh, Community Church in, on Oahu. Um, just amazing. It's amazing. These young people give of their vacations, their summers, to come here for a week, and they serve not just our church, but all of the Maui County Baptist Association churches and putting on a fantastic camp for the children. So thank you, and I mean that. Uh, thank you for your work, for your labor in the gospel. And we will be praying for you uh, that your labor is not in vain. We know it won't be. We'll pray that God gives a mighty increase in your efforts. So thank you for serving our children uh, and above all, serving Christ. My children are sick today. My wife is not here. Uh, one of my children is here, Scarlet Grace. Uh, and we sang a song. You sang a song, ladies. Thank you. Uh, that actually is part of the foundation, the thread of thought for her name, Scarlet Grace. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look. There is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow may you be today. And so that was part of the inspiration of our naming for her. If, if grace had a color, it would be scarlet or crimson. Uh, and so we have named her Scarlet Grace to remind us of the grace of God in Christ Jesus that is ours by faith. Uh, and so that is a, a song dear to my heart. Thank you, ladies, for uh, singing that, reminding me of that wonderful grace that can make us whiter than snow. Uh, all right, now today we're going to jump in. We're going to jump in here uh, as we are here on this Father's Day into a really intimate passage of Scripture, a very intimate passage of Scripture in John 17. Uh, this is shortly before he is arrested. Uh, his final words to his 11 disciples have, or this is basically ended in chapter 16. Uh, he is going, he is marching on the road to his death, and now we have recorded for us a prayer. You get to you get be a fly on the wall. Uh, you get to listen in on the son's prayer, the obedient son's prayer to his father right before he dies. You ever wonder when you get saved, how do I pray? What do I pray about? What do I pray for? How often should I pray? But uh, all these things come up and we can answer them, but really to intimately get involved, uh, how ought I to model my life after Jesus in his prayer life? What types of things should I pray for? What a gift we have here in John 17. What a gift we have preserved for us as we truly get a listen in 
to the prayer life of Jesus. We know he prayed from the Gospels. It often told us he withdrew to a quiet place to pray early in the morning through the evening, many times that he would pray, but it doesn't give us the substance of those prayers. Here, we get a peek at the substance of the prayer. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic, mind-blowing. I told you last week I wouldn't do it justice. I'm going to tell you this week I'm not going to do it justice. You should just read it. We're going to take it in two weeks. Uh, We're going to do 1 through 19 this week, and then we're going to finish off the chapter in two weeks. This is such a special uh, passage of Scripture. Some scholars have referred to it as the Holy of Holies of the Gospel. The Holy of Holies. You enter into the innermost sacred space as the Father and Son converse here in prayer. And as we listen to the prayer of Jesus, just as if we listen to any of your prayers and you listen to my prayers, you can tell as you listen to somebody praying over time the things that are dear and important to them, can't you? Especially in their most private prayer lives, you can tell what is close to their very heart. And we see that with Jesus, and I think it'll be very instructive for us. So let's pray and get at it. Father in heaven, As we honor earthly fathers made in your image and likeness this morning, we want to, above all, honor you, bring you glory and praise for your fatherhood, for your faithfulness, for your instruction, for your leadership, for your sacrifice, for your work, for your authority, how you rule and reign over all things for the good of your people to give them life. So as we examine this prayer of your Son to glorify the Father, Father, may you glorify the Son this morning through the preaching of your word and the transformed lives of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I have two points, two points for 1 through 19 that we'll cover, two points, 1 through 19. They are kind of the gists of each prayer. This is a pretty, uh, pretty easy passage to outline and break down. You have uh, the first section, 1 through 6, uh, sorry, 1 through 5, where we glorify the Son. The Father's purposes and the obedience of the Son accomplish, mission accomplish, glorify your Son. That's the first five verses. Second uh, portion, 6 through 19, glorify your name through the perseverance of your people, through your disciples, these 11. He's praying for his 11 disciples in 6 through 19. And then from 20 to the end of the chapter, yeah, it is, we'll get to that next week, but that is where he prays for believers to continue on and persevere in, in unity and faith and glorifying the Son in their mission on earth. So we'll talk about that in two weeks. Uh, But for today, we have two points. Glorify the Son and keep your people. Glorify the Son is number one, and keep your people. Number one, glorify the Son. He has just taught his disciples in 13 to 16, the, the upper room discourse. He's taught them many things. He now proceeds to pray for them. He now commences interceding for them. Now, this we learn first by way of example, beloved. Those whom you teach the word to in any capacity, or one day hope to, if you have any aspirations for ministry, if you're going to teach the word either now or in the future, Let this be an example to pray fervently for those whom you teach. Pray for them. Mililani, as you go and teach our students this week, you will teach them the word, and we are thankful. But will you pray for them as well? Will you pray for them as well? Pray for them as you teach them. We will pray for you as you teach them, and we will pray for them. as. And as we are praying, the Lord will get all the glory. And maybe you're not teaching in a formal sense. Perhaps you're here, you're not going to camp, you not have any aspirations for ministry. Perhaps you're a husband or a father or a leader of your household in some capacity. With you, everybody is tasked with ministering the Word of God to their family, to his or her family. So let me ask you, fathers, mothers, how often do you pray for your children whom you preach to? You plead with them all day long, 
brush your teeth, <laughs> wash your hands, don't be mean to your sister, share your toys, uh, don't, don't touch things after you've touched other things, right? Uh, don't pick your nose or do your homework or wake up on time, listen to your alarm clock. There are all these things we tell our children. We're preaching to them, but don't like, neglect to pray for them. Don't neglect to pray for your families, to pray for your wife. If you speak to your family on behalf of God, then we can't neglect of speaking to God on behalf of our families. We must do both, and Jesus models for us both here. And when we do so, when we pray for them, we are inviting God to do the heavy lifting, if you will, of imparting spiritual life to our families, to those whom we hear. And so I have prayed for you this morning, Kahului Baptist. I pray for you regularly, every day. Not all of you every day, but all of you throughout the week. I pray for you. I pray that the Spirit will build you up this morning through the preaching of His Word. And so now we move into the prayer itself. So that's the example. Pray for those whom you teach and preach to. Now we move into the prayer itself. The glory of the Son is the glory of the Father. Go to verses 1 and 2. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The glory of the Son is the glory of the Father. The hour has come. Jesus, all throughout John's gospel, my hour's not yet, my hour's not yet, my hour's not yet. Chapter 12, the hour has come. And now he says, the hour is here, Father. Glorify your name. Glorify your Son. And Jesus is asking, he's asking for the Father to give him the glory that he had with him before he came in his incarnation. This is very important. This is very important. What's important about this? Who speaks like this? What man would speak like this? I mean, imagine if you go, you know, you pray and you hear me say, in the, Father, glorify me. Just like you glorify yourself. I want you to glorify Pastor Randy. I hope you would be shocked <laughs> if you heard that coming from my mouth. Because you'd be like, What? You might say, well, maybe he's meaning a lesser glory. Maybe he, Pastor Randy's re referring to a lesser glory. No, I'm like, glorify me, God, just as you glorify yourself. Oh, that would be uh, blasphemy. You would rightfully walk out. No man would speak like this. No mere man. Unless he was no mere man. He was the Word made flesh, fully God. Fully man seeking his own glory. God is the only being for whom it is proper to seek his own glory because he is the only and truly worthy of all glory. Amen. And so Christ prays properly, glorify the Son so that the Son may glorify the Father. And then he says something peculiar. He asks for the Father to glorify the Son and his glory to be seen in his giving life to all people. Check this out. Glorify your son, verse 1, that, your, that the son may glorify you. And then he, here he goes, verse 2. Since, this seems to be an odd construction, since you have given him authority over all flesh. That's weird. Wait, so glorify the son, okay, so that the son may glorify you since you have given me authority over all flesh. And then he goes on to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We're like, this, this prayer is just like so outside the scope of how we normally pray, isn't it? It's so outside, it's so foreign. Normally I'm like, you know, God help me to love you more. Help me to feel better. I'm going to love my family, forgive me of my sin, you know, things like this. And, and these are good and, and proper things to prayer, but to pray for. But how often am I like, Father, glorify your name no matter the costs. Glorify your name uh, in the giving of life to your people. And this is essentially what Jesus is doing. He's praying for the Father to glorify the Son. We could actually say, by way of application uh, here, 
pressing on past the meaning for a minute. It is the meaning, but by way of applying the meaning, you could say a good father will glorify the son. And so I could say for Father's Day, fathers, your chief purpose is to glorify who? The son and your family. Jesus. Not your own sons, but the son. The son of God, Jesus. But he says, okay, so how does this connection of since, since you have given him authority over all flesh? This is interesting. Now, the authority of the Son, we often think of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, ruling and reigning over all things. This is true. In view here, however, is not his general sovereignty. Rather, it is his rule or power of the Son to give eternal life to all whom he has been given. In view here is kind of the narrowing of his authority here. Glorify your son, since you've given me authority over all flesh. Glorify the son in my imparting of life to the people you've given me. He is narrowing his focus to talk about the, the use of his power to give life to his people. Now, in John 11, when we were in John chapter 11, long time ago, uh, not that long ago, but several months ago, I preached a sermon, an entire sermon, on what theologians refer to as unconditional election. Unconditional election, the means by which God chooses people to be saved by virtue of His grace and His alone, apart from any works in them. It is his sovereign choice, unconditional election. If you missed that sermon or if you don't recall what I'm even talking about, by all means, it's on our website, kahaloeibaptist.org, John chapter 11, it's there. But that's what's in view here. The Son, Jesus, has been given a people by the Father. And this gift of the Father to the Son, he was given these people for the purpose of granting them eternal life. Them and only them. All people are not in view here. He is referring to a distinct group of people that theologians and the scriptures would refer to as the elect, and his prayer for them will be answered by the Father. Not one of his people will fail to receive life, because Christ will not fail in his mission. If you approach this text and if you let the text speak for itself, you can't get around this. Now, this isn't a sermon on election, but this passage doesn't make sense without understanding it's in the background. Without understanding this is at play in the background, this passage falls on deaf ears. The authority of the Son is utilized to give life to His people. Now, just think about that. Just think about that. In any position... In any position, you are often granted authority for a purpose to accomplish your task. Now, let's suppose you're a manager. You're a manager at a business, small business, large business, whatever, and perhaps your role as manager is the responsibility to uh, orchestrate schedules. You have to make the schedule, the work schedule. You have given authority literally over people's time, over their life. You get to say how they spend these several hours a day. That's actually a weighty authority, isn't it? That's, that's huge. Your authority is given to you to accomplish the purpose of advancing the business, the objectives of the organization, allowing things to run smoothly. We're all given authority for the purpose of accomplishing a task. And Jesus has been given authority to advance the glory of the Father through giving eternal life to his people. Amen. This is what Ephesians 1 refers to, verses 22 and 23, it says this, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Does that not blow your mind? Just, I mean, just, yes, he's ruling and reigning over all things, but why, why, why is he ruling over all things? For the good of his people, for the good of you sitting here this morning with all your trials and tribulations and heartaches and joys and, and gifts and all of it, Christ is reigning, exercising his authority to glorify his Father and giving you life. 
Praise God. Praise God. We have a good father indeed. And this is his main aim, to give glory to the Father through his obedient life, sacrificial death, and resurrection. So fathers, now, application. Here we go. You have been given likewise authority, exousia. I like that Greek word. That is a, is a nice, just powerful exousia. You've been given authority by God. Or if you are a, uh, I hear some of you whisper and try to say exousia. It feels good, doesn't it? All right, just authority. I've been given that. You've been given that by God in various areas. It has been said as, as the mother is the heart of the home, not to equal or not to detract from the importance of fathers, rather to enhance it. Uh, fathers are equally important in that they are the head of the home, and their nurturing, their training, their leadership is vital. So fathers, you have been given a, a role in your home or head of household if you're maybe a single parent or somehow. You've been given a role in your home for your wife's good, for the good of your wife, for the good of your children. You are the head of that household, and your exousia, your authority is meant to impart life to them. It's meant to create an atmosphere in which you can cultivate holiness in which you can cultivate and encourage godliness in your wife and in your children. If you have authority at work, perhaps an employee or an employer or whatever you are in, that's the purpose of your authority. If you're going to be like Christ, to encourage life. Now, you can't give life. You aren't Christ. You can't, you can't impart that divine spiritual life at your sovereign will. If I could, then my child, my children would be believers, right? Son, believe in Jesus now. I don't have that authority, but I have authority to structure my household, my lifestyle, such that the environment around them is one that the Father would be pleased to exercise his authority in and bring them to faith in Christ. Do you see that as your chief aim Fathers, do you see that as your chief aim, employers? And may God allow it and grant our efforts. Now, I could tease that out more, but perhaps it's good to think about that over lunch or over this week. How am I using my authority in my household? Whose aim am I pushing? What exactly am I encouraging in the lives of my children are my children encouraged to love, I don't know, who, who played in the basketball game? I don't know. What is it, the Warriors? What's their name? The Warriors, and I don't know who they are. Steph Curry? I, I, I don't follow basketball. But some, sad to say, while these things are good, some children learn more love of football and basketball and things of this nature than they do love of Christ. Our authority is used to push other agendas, sometimes our own comfort, sometimes others. This ought not to be the case. So maybe you can examine your use of authority by way of application this week and we'll move on. All authority is used to impart life to his people through his obedience, through his death, through his life, through his resurrection, and now through his intercession on behalf of his people. Now that sounds good, eternal life. You've given him authority over all flesh, and this is what he says, verse 3. And this, uh, sorry, to, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's important that he says that, because life must be defined, doesn't it? If I were to ask some of you, what is, your, what is your favorite thing to do in life? You might tell me something that I absolutely abhor. Maybe your favorite food. You might say something like, Ooh, I just, no thank you, right? I'm good. I appreciate that, but I don't want it. I like most food, so I can't think of something that you would say. But perhaps a, a, a sport of some type, I don't know, maybe you like uh, 
basket weaving or you know, cro crocheting or right crocheting's pretty cool. I saw some crocheting, right? That's pretty cool, but I don't have the patience to, to learn to do these things or or whatever, right? Uh, I think it's cool that others can, but I just don't have the patience for these things. I'm gonna get in trouble here golfing. I've tried it. I've tried it. It's just not my thing. It's not my thing. Uh, but we all have these things. What is life to you? Life must be defined. I might not want the life that's offered to me. Say, yeah, I come to give you life. Okay, well, what kind of life is this? Well, I, is this life I want? It's hugely important. What do you think life is about? What do you think heaven is about? If you ask, what is eternal life? What are you looking forward to in eternal life? Some would answer streets of gold, mansions, seeing your long-lost loved one or pet, playing 18 holes for all of eternity. What is heaven? Now, we laugh, except for most of the popular concepts of heaven in novels and movies, popular movies, are devoid of the answer that Jesus gives. And I don't just mean like they don't emphasize it. I mean devoid, absence. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And don't forget, he's praying these things. He's praying for this. He's not just teaching this. He's praying, God, may they know life. May they know eternal life that I'm going to give to them. And this is life that they know God. Does that seem like eternal life to you, knowing God? On a side note, this is going to come up later. I want you to underline every occurrence of the word sent or sinned in John 17. So that's your homework this week. Not right now. The first one is right here for you, verse 3. And Jesus Christ, whom you have, there it is, sent. I want you to, in your, your homework this week, your Bible, you have two weeks before I get to John 19, uh, or sorry, John 17, the last half, verse 20 on, you have two weeks to, to go through John 17 and find every occurrence of the word sent or send and either underline it or highlight it and ask yourself, what is the significance in this passage? Okay, that's your homework this week. That's the aside. We're going to come back now. So if that's life, if life is knowing God, eternal life is knowing God, then does it not follow that that should be our chief aim and joy right now? Right? Do we want to really get to the end of days and stand before God and say, okay, now I'm going to start knowing you? If we do, we might not get to that point. So it follows that this should be our chief joy, our chief aim in the here and the now. Let me ask you this morning, what is your chief joy and aim? What characterizes your prayers? Is it this, God? God, I've, I've fallen short of your glory. Help me to know you more. You see that as the answer to your sin struggle. Help me to know you. And he doesn't mean just well, five times six is whatever, right? It's two plus three. He, he doesn't mean mathematical, simple, uh, comprehensive of facts. He means let me know you intimately the way Adam knew his wife Eve and they were one flesh. Let me, let me know you, God. That's my problem why I sin. That's the issue I'm having when you struggle is I don't know something about God. I've been deceived by sin to believe something else about God, and so I act accordingly. Is this my answer to life and joy now? God, help me to know you. It ought to be. This is what he prays for. What characterizes your prayers for your family or perhaps, Lord, help my family to know you at all costs. At all costs. That can be a frightful prayer. Or, 
What does your money, time, energy communicate to others about your aim in life? So not just your word, your praying, but what is your actions, street-level application? What does that communicate about the chief aim and joy in your life? Is, does the, the, your checkbook show that your chief aim is to know God in this life and enjoy Him forever? Something worth asking, your time, your communication. Where, how do you need to realign this aim in your life? Maybe that would be a good conversation over lunch. Hammering that out. Man, what's an area in your life? Man, this is some good intentional conversation. What's an area in your life that maybe you feel like isn't communicating that you need to know God above all things and know Him intimately? How can you realign very practically Oh, man, maybe I spend too much time on social media. It keeps me from my Bible, or I'm engaged in a relationship that's dishonoring to God, and that's, that's hindering my knowledge of God. I need to realign that. Or I'm just so busy with life. I'm just busy, just busyness. Not anything bad, just busyness in general, which makes bad things, good things bad if it detracts us from God. This would be a good, very profitable conversation for you to have today over lunch. What needs to be realigned in your life to communicate that this is your life, knowing God? Now, this idea can't be cut off from the rest of the storyline of Scripture. So far, I haven't mentioned anything else outside of John 17 regarding to knowing God. So let's, let's insert it into the big uh, Bible arc storyline of the Scriptures, all right? So remember, go back with me in time, in your brain, to the result of Genesis chapter 3. You remember, God created everything good. Very good with man and woman created. They're there. They're to exercise dominion over the, the world to, to uh, bring it under dominion and to cultivate it and to spread the knowledge of the glory of God over every part of the planet. Just one thing. Don't what? Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then chapter 3 comes, the, ser the serpent deceives Eve while Adam stands idly by doing nothing, and they all get plunged into sin, and all of creation is cursed now. And there's this breach of relationship with God, and, and the curse was, the promise was, the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die, right? And we talked about the Hebrew, in dying you shall die, and, and God just trying to impress on them, you're going to die. It's going to be bad. And die they did, spiritually, immediately, separation from God, and eventually physical death. That's what death is, isn't it? What is death but a separation from God and life? Death is a separation from life and of everything in importance in life, namely God who is life. And so they died. And their separation from God was immediate and from one another as they made feeble attempts to cover their nakedness with what? Leaves. And they were cut off from one another and they tried to hide from God's presence. And the punishment was the cursing of the garden, the cursing of the world. The created order is upended, and they were banished from the garden and banished from another tree, the tree of what? Life. In God's mercy, he kept them from the tree of life. So rather than having eternal life with God, Adam and Eve were cut off from life with God and intimacy with him. No longer would they ever walk in intimate, full, transparent relationship with God since the beginning of time. But it wasn't all bad, was it? Genesis chapter 3 had a promise, didn't it? The promise that one day the seed of the woman would be born who would crush the head of the serpent, and yet he would bruise his heel and ever since then, God has been at work to bring his promises to pass, to reverse the effects of the fall, and grant life to his people where he would again walk in their midst truly, intimately. So we can say, truly, to know God through the Son is to have life realized, restored.
and redemption. That's how he's praying. Complete your promises, God. Bring them to pass in the Son. To know God through Christ is to realize the purpose for which you were created. And this is what Christ offers. And this what his mission was in being sent. That is what he finished. That is what he brought to pass in his death and resurrection. Now, he refers to the completion of this mission as the obedience that brought glory to the Father on earth. He speaks of it as having been accomplished because its nearness was so close that his focus was unbreakable to glorify his Father. Sorry, and his focus was unbreakable. And so Jesus petitions once again to be glorified with the glory he had in his pre-incarnate states. So that petition, that kind of final petition in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That petition is nothing less than embrace of the suffering of the cross and a radical statement of his obedience unto death. He is embracing what's before him. He sees the cup of the Father's wrath before him, and he is embracing it, knowing that that is the cup, that is the means by which he will receive the glory that he had. He is embracing the suffering that is before him. How much more ought we, beloved, to embrace suffering and loss for the glory of God. When we do, we find that the loss doesn't quite describe our experience, does it? The word loss, whenever we do embrace it, as he's embracing what's about to come, whenever we embrace loss and embrace suffering for the gospel, we find that the term loss just doesn't quite accurately describe our experience. See, to the world, it begins to look like loss. But to those who follow Christ, we know it's nothing but life and gain, as Paul says in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ and knowing Christ. So, John Calvin, the famous theologian, he observed it this way. Therefore, I quote, we ought to submit to Christ, not only that we may obey God, but because nothing is more lovely than the subjection of since it brings us to eternal life, close quote. So we ought to obey God not only just out of sheer duty, but because nothing is more lovely than that subjection that brings us to life. Think of it like this then. So when I preach, as I'm preaching to you now, and when I plead with you to place your trust in Jesus and to follow Jesus, I am pleading with you to embrace and receive life, not death. Not destruction, but life and joy in Christ. So glorify the Son, that's number one. Glorify the Son, number one. Number two. You guys are like, what? Number two? It's been 35 minutes already. I say, only 35 minutes? Only 35? Number two, keep your people. This will go quicker. He asked them for a few things. Keep them in your name. Keep them united. Keep them from evil. And keep them in truth and on mission. He asked them a few things there in keeping of his people. Keep your people. Keep them in your name. That comes in verse 11, if you check that out. Uh, Verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, the Holy Father. Uh, Keep, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. What does it mean to be kept in the name of God? What does that mean? It means for God to keep you in his character in his mission, in his purpose, in his nature, by, that by God is staking his glory on the good, the advancement of his people, right? So he shifted the glory of the Father in the Son and the accomplishing of the mission that they had. Now he's shifting, glorify your name in the completion of the mission of your people, 
Namely, immediately in view here is the ministry of the apostles. Keep them in your name. Keep them for your glory. Or he could say, keep them at the expense of your name. And see, the glory of a name is important, isn't it? Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Or Isaiah 48 really hits this home, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. I want you to notice, uh, as this passage comes up, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, I want you to notice just how God-centered he's talking about here. It's kind of shocking to us, all right? So just think about why God does things for you, and now he's kind of explaining right here in this passage here. uh, Why does God defer his anger? Why does God not uh, execute wrath on unbelievers and sin at certain times? Why is he patient with us? Why does he do these things? Check this out. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise. This is what God's saying. I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. First, notice the radical God-centeredness of God but how that's also good news for you. So when Christ prays to his faithful Father, who is going to answer, and he says, keep them in your name, he has just placed an unbreakable seal on his people. You're not going to be lost. For you to be lost would be to defame his name, and he will never allow the defamation of his name or character, finally or ultimately. He will vindicate the glory of his great name. This petition of Jesus is the unbreakable seal that you can stamp your hope on, that God will act. He will keep his people for the glory of his great name. What do you pray for? How confidently do you pray for? This is the foundation of your prayers. This is the foundation that you can put to death sin, that you can overcome that besetting struggle in your life. This is your hope that Christ prayed this for you, that Christ, that the Father will keep you in his name. This is what assures you of John 16, 33. Take heart, I have overcome the world. You may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but in me and Christ you'll have peace. There's victory. What assures your victory? The, stu- the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the intercession of Christ and his priestly prayer. Keep them in your name. It's a beautiful thing to stake your hope on, to know that you will be victorious over sin, It will not have the final say because God is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure, for the glory of his name. Keep them in your name, but this has a purpose. This this also has a fruit to it. And he goes on in verse 11, keep them united. You could say, uh, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Why or to what end? That they may be one even as we are one. I don't have time to flesh out what that, even as we are one. But at the very least, we can say that the unity of the body is the will of God. Our oneness in Christ and our oneness with one another is what brings God glory. And now in a world tainted with sin, with anger, hostility, division, unity is to be prayed for and sought after with the utmost energy and effort in the body of Christ. When we are united for the purpose, and this is what I love about Mililani coming here, and it's just a beautiful picture of Mililani Community Church. You're not a Baptist church, right? I don't think you are. Are you a Baptist? No, I don't think so. You're not a Baptist church. You don't have that there, and, you know, Baptist isn't on your name, but we got Baptist on it. We don't have Millinois community, right? But here we are, united for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Christ, and it is a beautiful picture, and many will hear the gospel because of it. This is worth laying down our preferences for, 
our personal opinions to pursue, isn't it? It's not worth laying down truth for, but it is worth laying down our personal preferences of clothing style, of uh, worship music, of, of whatever you think you as always it looks like to honor God or something like that. It's worth pursuing unity at the cost of these other things. See, the Scriptures know much about the power, the strength of unity. Again, putting this in the storyline of the Bible, the unity of the Tower of Babel. You remember the people of uh, the creation was, uh, was not spreading across the globe. Instead, they were uniting, and they were building a tower that was an affront to God. It was disobedience. And he recognized the unity of the people, and he says, if they continue out there, there's nothing they'll be incapable of doing. So unity under the reign of sin is an affront to God, but unity of the church under the reign of Christ is a powerful and unstoppable force for the advancement of the gospel. Pray that they would be one. Keep them united. Keep them from evil. Verse 15, keep them from evil. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. From the evil one. He prays that his people would be kept from sin and from Satan. How often is that at the top of your prayer list? This is how Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are not meant to be taken out of the world, though, in this process. This keeping is, a, is, a, is meant to be a guarding from us in the world system. And I would say the unity that he just prayed for is one of the chief means that his people are also kept from the evil one. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. Uh, I was just watching uh, some Disney nature uh, animal planet type of deal uh, where they, you know, they record all these things in nature like high def. It really is mind-blowing the fact that we can even see these things. Uh, it will stir you to worship. But one of the things that showed this polar bear, right, this, this polar bear hunting, and he, he's got to eat or he's going to die. And this is after, the, you know, their hibernation and stuff. They're in the Antarctic. And, and, and this polar bear is out. And he, it's kind of his last-ditch effort to get food. If he doesn't land something, he can't find a seal, so he goes for a walrus, right? And if he doesn't get a walrus, walruses are bigger than seals. They're all, you know, I don't know. I don't know. If he, sorry, I don't know. what That's not in my notes. When I deviate from my notes, it's bad. Um, he goes for a walrus that's significantly larger, and there's a bunch of walruses. And if he doesn't get this walrus, he's going to die, but they're far more dangerous than a seal because they have those big tusks. And he's, of course, going to go for a baby walrus. And he comes up, this polar bear just walks up. And all the walruses, this is amazing. I never saw this. This whole, I don't know what you call a herd of walruses, but walrus eye. They all, uh, they immediately, they all put the kids in, into the circle and they turn their backs and expose their hard hide, their, and walruses are kind of blubbery, so I guess they have enough fat that the boy can't get to it or something. And they all expose their backs in unity, protecting their young and the weak. And this bear starts clawing at them and biting them, and, and of course my four-year-old's like, you know, <laughs> what's happening? Sacrificing their own backs, their own safety, for the good of the young and the good of the herd. And the polar bear didn't get one of them. He didn't get one of them. Right here, keep them from the evil one. Keep them united just as we are united. And when the body is united in Christ, anchored and rooted their hope in Christ and in the gospel, and Satan comes, the evil one comes to attack, that he finds an un unbreachable wall where we are sacrificing our, ourselves for the good of one another, and he is repelled. And what happened to the polar bear? Well, it's kind of sad. He did die. He did die. But in our illustration, it's good. <laughs> Keep them from the evil one. And in closing, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Verse 17. In verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Keep them in truth and on mission. See, theology is meant to train the mind toward mission. Theology is meant to train the mind towards mission. Sanctify them, make them holy in truth, 
and then they are sent on mission. So we can't have renewal of the mind without mission, and we can't have mission without engaging the mind. All of you in this room and churches, ours including, will struggle with this balance. So you individually will struggle with this, and then corporately, all churches will struggle with this balance. We have to have theology in mind, flowing us, pressing us toward mission for it to be done well. So some people do theology without mission. So you just in books, you like to do this, but you never share the gospel. You never attempt to make a disciple. That breeds pride, a lack of compassion, and judgmentalism. Some people go the other road. This, all your tendency will be one or the other. You'll go the other way, and you'll be like, you know what, let's not talk about these types of things, you know, the, the, those types of things. That's, that's just not good for anything, election and, and all these things. We don't need to talk about that. Let's just, let's just be on mission, make disciples. And so they'll attempt to do mission without the engaging of the mind. The Scriptures will not allow for this dichotomy of the two. This won't do. Theology goes up to God and outward to man in compassionate love and mercy. And if theology doesn't leave you feeling compelled to seek holiness in your own life or to spread the gospel to others, then it's poor theology. And in your missions, you must have theology. So for some of you, you need to leave here and look at your theology. You're, so in, you're good intellectually, and then you need to challenge yourself and say, how do I need to flesh my theology out on mission practically to be obedient to Christ? And then others in here, you need to go out say, have I been so mission-focused that maybe I'm undercutting the very mission I'm seeking to do because I don't know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the gospel? And maybe you need to take a systematic theology class or be in the scriptures or go to the BCCM and help have your mind renewed for the glory of God. So let's do both theology that trains the mind and motivates us to mission. And in closing, as the Father has sent the Son into the world, so has the Son sent his people into the world. So you are sent. Live as people who are sent this week for the glory of the Heavenly Father. Let's pray.